the last two Sabbaths, we were examining um, the, excuse me, examining the scripture. I'm just noticing that my title doesn't show through so clearly on the slide. My apologies. It says the rule of faith. And the title for the sermon, the rule of faith, has to do with uh, really the question, how did our Bible come to be? We spent two Sabbaths kind of looking at critiques that people make about the Word of God, and we've explored them and seen how the Bible really gives us a foundation for depending upon it. But do you know there's like all sorts of other books? You know, like there's the Epistle of Barnabas. Do you have that in your Bible? Could you look that up or not? No, Epistle of Barnabas, we don't have. Anybody have the Gospel of Thomas? No, not in there either. There's a host of it. There's the Acts of John and all sorts of different books. And sometimes people ask the question, well, why those books that you have in your Bible and not other ones? How did those get to be chosen? You know, did some arbitrary person or a group of people, a council of people, they say, look, these are the ones we want because they agree with us. Or was there something else at play? So this morning, let's kind of study together. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to begin there with with Jesus' response or how Jesus looked at scriptures. But before we do, let me just share something that was interesting in the news this week. And those of you that are tech savvy, please don't start Googling right now. They found an early fragment of the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is a mask of a mummy. And I guess in those days, the material, papyrus, that they used to make these masks was valuable. So they would reuse them. They would cut them apart, and they would kind of glue them together and make these masks. And there have been a group of people taking them apart and trying to find out what these documents originally were. And they found what is supposedly a copy of the Gospel of Mark that goes all the way back to the first century, around 95 AD. Now, there's still some study that needs to be done, but if this turns out to be true, it will give us a copy of the Gospel of Mark about 100 years earlier than the one we currently have. And if it's true, and if it matches up to what we have, which is what the scholars are thinking, that's really good evidence bringing us very close back to that first copy that Mark wrote. Really intriguing. Um, Didn't make the headlines in the New York Times, but it still was very interesting. But let's turn to Luke chapter 24. And Luke 24 is the account after Jesus has died and raised again, was risen, and two of his disciples are walking back to their village, the village of Emmaus. It's about eight miles from Jerusalem. And as they're walking, a stranger comes alongside of them And the stranger notices that the two disciples are downcast, they're discouraged, they're downtrodden, their hopes have been dashed. And so the stranger comes up and says, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so sad? And these two men are like, are you the only person that doesn't know what's been happening in Jerusalem? And the stranger says, well, what things? And then the two disciples begin to describe the crucifixion and how they had put their hopes on Jesus. And now... Their faith was completely shattered. And then the stranger says something very intriguing. Luke chapter 24 in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, 
to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Of course, the stranger was who? stranger was Jesus. They didn't recognize him. He hadn't revealed himself to them. And there's a tremendously interesting thing that's happening here. The very event that brought discouragement, despondency, that seemed to destroy their faith was actually the event that should have encouraged their faith. And rather than simply just saying, look, I am the risen Christ, Jesus takes the time. And could you imagine walking that eight miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus as they're going along and the stranger Jesus just continually pulls passage after passage after Old Testament text. And he begins to explain to them how this is pointing to the death of the Messiah. That would have been a Bible study, amen? (laughs) Uh, Just to hear Jesus go through that and this passage continues that you know, they, they could tell that his, they felt their hearts burning within them as he explained all these things. And they urge him to stay. And as he breaks bread, they realize this is Jesus. And their excitement contains no bounds. They jump up. They start going back another eight miles, eight miles, eight miles. How many is that? Sixteen. Because they want to get back to the disciples to let everyone know Jesus is raised. But notice what Jesus does. Before revealing himself, he points them where? To the scriptures. And he explains everything from beginning with Moses, um, when he comes to this meeting, when they are describing uh, their experience to the other disciples. Let's drop down to verse 36. The two disciples have come back, and Jesus came back with them, unknowns to them. But in verse 36, it says, while they were telling, these are the two disciples to the others, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. I like the way the gospel of Luke opens up with a message of peace from the angels, and it ends with a message of peace from Jesus Christ, beginning to end a message of peace. But they were startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And so they're totally amazed. And then in verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, where? In the law of Moses and the prophets, And the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so again, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and rise again the third day. And he continues giving them their commission. I just want to zero in on Jesus' reaction or relation to the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus clearly saw that they pointed to him. Now, notice that expression. Everything written in the law of Moses, that would be the first five books of the Bible. 
And then, what's the next section? Back up there in verse, the prophets. And then finally, the Psalms. So there's this division that Jesus identifies. One more verse for you, if you're interested, you can look at this later. Luke 16:31. Jesus, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, they have Moses and their scriptures, their writings. Let them believe them. So Jesus, in his life, continually pointed people back to the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the word of God. And so it's interesting to begin thinking about and thinking about this threefold division, law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, or sometimes called the writings. And if you go back and read um, a history of the forming of the Old Testament, we'll find that very early, the law of Moses was seen to be authoritative. People said, yeah, that is really true. In fact, there's a group of um, distant cousins to the Jews, the Samaritans, and their copy of the Old Testament only has the first five books in the Bible. So they said, well, that's authoritative, but nothing else. And then a collection was gathered of prophets and writings, and and over time, the Hebrew community, the Jewish community said, look, this really is the authoritative word of God to us. Now, let's not think that it happened overnight. For example, the book of Esther took a long time for people to realize, yeah, that's really authoritative. Anyone care to venture a guess as to why? Something. Say it again. Yeah, Esther doesn't mention the word God in, in it at all. Certainly, God is moving through the book of Esther. And so Esther became one of those books that was read every year for Purim, for the holiday, but it was one of those books that took a little bit of time for the whole community to say, this is really God's word. But how did Jesus relate to the scriptures. Uh, Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 in verse 17. Matthew 5 in verse 17. Someone read that for us. Now, there was a little slip of the tongue, right? And if we had been scribes, we might have, like, written what you wrote the first time. So, do not think I have come to abolish what? The law. And when he says that, what does he mean? The law of most first five books of the Bible, or the prophets, all the writings of the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying that what everybody else considered to be authoritative, he also thought was authoritative. Someone else read John 10, verse 35. Okay, I'm kind of pulling that text out. What really I want to focus on is that the scripture cannot what? Be broken. So here's this, again, another from Jesus' perspective, the, what we call the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, the Writings, they were authoritative. This, these were the measure, the rule um, of faith. Let's turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at one a little bit more intriguing. Matthew chapter 19. And by the way, um, we often call the collection of books in our Bible, the canon, and that's not spelled as canon, C-A-N-N-O-N, but canon, C-A-N-O-N, and canon simply means rule, guide. And so the rule of faith, the authoritative books. Matthew chapter 19, it's a very interesting passage. Let's look, start in verse 3. Some Pharisees come to Jesus, and they begin to test him. 
they've been thinking about this for a while, and so they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? <coughs> How does Jesus answer? Verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 4 and 5. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Wherefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, notice what happens in verse 7. The Pharisees, or excuse me, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they're ready, and they have a response. And they said, why then did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this is actually a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24. So what's happening in this passage? Jesus is being questioned about divorce. And what is, where does Jesus get his answer from? He gets his answer from Genesis. Okay, so that tells us something about Jesus' view of Genesis. What is it? It's what? It's reliable. Jesus, Jesus looked at Genesis, at least, whether you agree with him or not is a question, but Jesus looked at Genesis as Reliable. More than reliable, he looked at Genesis as? Okay, authoritative. Inspired. Foundation. I'm looking for another word. Historical. True. Jesus refers back to creation of man and woman, and he uses this as a paradigm. Now, if man and woman, Adam and Eve, were not created, then, then Jesus' whole argument is undercut. So Jesus looks back to Genesis as historical, authoritative, true, inspired, all the things that you had brought out. Um, there's something else that's interesting there. He brings out, this is a little more subtle, in verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, and then in verse 5, said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, where that's quoted, and you read that, it doesn't say in the text, God said this. It simply is a narrative. But who does Jesus say is, is really the speaker? It's God. So it's the creator communicating to us. Now, what about this situation that the, the Pharisees bring out, this other Bible verse? you know, Deuteronomy, where it talks about permission for divorce. How can we pull these two things together? What is Jesus doing when he pulls these two things together? So in one place, Deuteronomy says you can divorce your wife. And Jesus says, yeah, it says that there, but there's another text you need to take into account, and that is Genesis. And that God was only responding to the hardness of your hearts. How do we relate to that? Does it make you uncomfortable? Two Bible verses like disagree with one another and like you get to pick one that you like? Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not kill, but I say, if you get angry with somebody, you're guilty happening? 
Jesus is trying to draw out some principles, isn't he? Actually, one um, rabbi wrote this. I, I hope you'll appreciate it the way I did. Sometimes somebody will come up with a Bible verse, and this rabbi said, you have learned to read. That's good. Now go and learn how to interpret. In other words, Jesus is interpreting, isn't he? And he's saying, okay, well, these are both authoritative, but there is a deeper principle here in Genesis chapter 2 that helps us interpret the rest of Scripture. We've learned to read. That's good. We need to learn how to also interpret. But Jesus saw the Bible as authoritative. He saw it as continuing. Um, He saw it as a guide for humanity. But of course, in Jesus' day, the Bible only consisted from Genesis through to what? Well, actually, it would have been Chronicles because they had it in a different order, but yes, the book of Malachi. Um, So, But then the question comes up, what about these New Testament writings? How do they become part of the canon of Scripture? How do they become part of our our Bible, like where did, how did this happen? How come that we don't have the Gospel of Thomas in here? Well, there are, there's a lot of good reasons. But let's look through a couple of Bible verses together. Let's turn, first of all, to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 in verses 15, let's 14, 15, and 16. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, for the second coming, that is, be diligent. This is good admonition for us. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. So Peter is saying, you know, be faithful, be diligent. Paul also wrote about these things. But then notice what else Peter says. The last part, the middle part of verse 16. In which are some things, what? Hard to understand. Have you ever read anything in Paul's writings that you couldn't understand? You know, okay, so Peter had the same problem. There were some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, and this is what I want you to understand or notice, as they do what? The rest of what? The rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Notice, by the time Peter is writing 2 Peter, which was toward the end of the first century, Paul's writings have become considered scripture. They're authoritative. They're inspired. The churches that received them said, this is the same voice speaking to me as in Genesis, I hear the same voice in Paul's writings. And so Peter, as he writes, he says, look, people misunderstand other scriptures. They do the same thing with the writings of the apostle Paul. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, chapter 5. So Paul's writings are considered scripture. And it's, as we look back in history, we find that Paul's letters were actually put in a 
collection. Not yet with the other books in the New Testament. Um, 1 Timothy, sorry, I'm in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Could you say amen to that? Yeah. We have a lot of good elders in this church, right? Thank you, Mike, for all your hard work. So uh, we have a lot of good elders here. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, notice, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's a quote from the book of Leviticus. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where's that from? Okay, well, they're from the words of Jesus. Where are they found? Somebody said Matthew. Someone said what? Luke. Luke chapter 10. That's right. Luke 10 verse 17. So, look, verse 7 rather. So, here we see Paul referring to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, and saying of Jesus and calling them both what? Calling them both scriptures. So very early, you know, the, the church believers began to say, you know, this is the same inspired voice. And actually, there was a collection. One church writer talks about the gospel, but he's referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so who put them together? We have no idea. But when they were put together, God's people recognized this is the same voice speaking to us as through the Old Testament scriptures. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. I just want to point out something else here. Luke chapter 1. Because it's important for us to realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not the only gospels written. Luke 1 starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth about the things you have been taught. A couple of things there. Were there other Gospels being circulated? In fact, there were. What does Luke say? There were many. Different people were writing. They were trying to, you know, talk about what had happened. And so Luke, under the inspiration of the Scripture, says, I'm going to study this out really carefully. I'm going to talk to the eyewitnesses. I'm going to talk to people that have passages memorized. And I'm going to put it together in order that you can know the what? The truth of the things you've heard. Very interesting process. The New Testament didn't fall down from us. You know, it's not like, no slight intended, but it's not like Mormonism's golden plates where they're just, we're there. You know, it wasn't like somebody just found the New Testament. But different people began to write. And then God's people recognized the same voice speaking to them from the Old Testament in these new writings. And then they began to be put together. So how did we get our books of the New Testament? How many are there, by the way? 
New Testament? 27. Very good. How did we get this list of 27 New Testament books? Well, we may have reason to thank this man, Marcion. Now, he was a heretic. He got rid of all the Old Testament. He didn't like the Old Testament at all. He thought the God of the Old Testament was in opposition to Jesus. Um, He got rid of the books Matthew and Mark as well. He got rid of the first part of the book of Luke. So in what sense could we owe anything to him? Because he put a little list together, and it was like part of the book of Luke and part of John and Paul's letters, some of them, and he said, this is what we need to follow. Now, if I came up to you next Sabbath and said, look, I want you to cut out these other portions from your Bible, how would you respond? You're not going to go along with that, right? And church people in that day began to do the same thing and say, wait a second, you can't get rid of all these other books. And some people began to discuss, well, which ones do we include? Do we include Revelation? Let's take a vote. Do we? Yes. Uh, And actually, Martin Luther didn't think Revelation should be in there, Um, or the book of James. Later on, he did. But there was a whole process where people began, they had this collection of the Gospels, they had Paul's letters, other letters, book of Revelation, what are we going to do with this? But people began to read them and pray and began to say, this is God speaking to me. Just as the disciples felt their heart burning when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, I sense my heart burning as I read these books. And finally, it was a couple of hundred years later, a bishop um, in 367 said, these are our books, 27, that comprise, again, the New Testament. Um, This is a very interesting thought. It's written by a New Testament scholar by the name of F.F. Bruce. And he said this, the writings were not considered authoritative because they were in the list. They were put in the list because they were considered authoritative. That's really important. It's not as though somebody in authority said, look, I want these to be the books that we follow, and I want to get rid of all these other ones, and everyone's going to match up to this rule. That's not the way it was at all. It was believers saying, I hear God's voice speaking to me here. Yeah, I hear God's voice speaking to me. These are the books that we believe God has been communicating to us through the writers of these books. And finally, we have our collection. And now you have them on your phones. Isn't that amazing? Wherever you are, I mean, if you have a smartphone, which probably a lot of people do, you have the Bible. And not just one version. You probably have 50 versions, or you could, how easy would it be to have your heart burn as Jesus speaks to you through his word? Wherever you are, you're waiting for something, you're traveling, you're in line to pull out something and to begin to memorize a passage of scripture, to begin to put it in our minds. We live in an age that is unbelievable for the privilege we have of interacting with the Word of God. Are we taking advantage of it? Or do we live as though we were back even before it was all put together? 
Or do we live or do we act in such a way that, yeah, you know, you know those hand-copied books, could you imagine a hand-copied written of the Old Testament? Would you like to carry that around? You know, when I would go to Hebrew school, when I went to temple as a child, um, every Sabbath we would bring out the Torah to read. And, you know, the person that does a scripture reading gets to carry this thing. It's terrifying because you're afraid you're going to drop it. And if you drop it, you have to fast for a whole length of time. It's, but to, to bring that out handwritten and carry it around, no. It's all right there. Are we interacting with the word of God? It's our privilege to have it. It's our rule of faith. It's authoritative, not because it's here. It's here because it's authoritative. Is the word of God having a greater play in your life and mine? Let's go back to Luke chapter 24. Again, Luke 24, again starting in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Excuse me, all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it not necessary? Wasn't it really part of God's plan, we could say? Wasn't it part of the plan from eternity that the Messiah would suffer these things and enter into the glory? Then he opens up the scriptures and explains all these things that concern himself. Dropping back down a little bit later, a little further here, verse 32. Then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Have you had that experience, my friends? Where you come in contact with the word of God and you sense God's presence speaking to you? That's what God's longing to have happen to us. And that's not just... Okay, I memorized the scripture, read, I got all these Bible texts memorized, and it's separate from me, but that our hearts, that our lives are transformed and are touched through this authoritative word of God. In the book Desire of Ages on page 668, the author writes this, if we come to him in faith, if we come to him how? In faith. Again, that which destroyed the faith of the disciples really should have confirmed their faith. If we come to him in faith, he will speak his mysteries to us personally. That means to you. That's what God is longing for, to be able to have a personal encounter with you, to communicate with you. Our hearts will often burn within us as one draws nigh to commune with us. But you know what's really intriguing about this story that we started with? As they've been walking for those eight miles or so, and they get to Emmaus, and it's dark, and they're about to turn in their house, Jesus makes on if he's going to keep walking. And it's only because the disciples said, no, no, come inside, stay with us, that he did. Jesus will come to us. He'll draw nigh to us. Will we open our hearts to allow him in? Will we give him the time? Will we invite him and say, Lord, come into my home, to my life, to every aspect of who I am? Or will we be satisfied if he just keeps walking onward? 
the new year. We have a tremendous opportunity to grow spiritually this year, to become more like him, which is God's great desire. And the way that happens is as we yield to him, as his spirit molds us, and as we come in contact with his word. There may be critics that assail the word of God. There may be people that question it. But the word of God is an unshakable foundation for you and I to build our lives on. The word of God has a power to make us right and to keep us right. Let's come in contact with that word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the rich privilege of, of knowing Jesus Christ. Of, we thank you for your sending him into history to become flesh, to become like one of us, that we might know what you are like better. Thank you for your word, Lord, and the opportunities that surround us on every hand to become better acquainted with it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a hunger and thirst that is not quenched until we sense your deep presence close to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.